0: Hello, and welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. I'm Chris McCormack, and this evening I'm joined by Louise Ashcroft, who is an artist based in London, Joseph Constable, who is a writer and assistant curator at Serpentine Gallery, also in London, and Daniel Neofito, who is a writer, and his forthcoming book, Rereading Abstract Expressionism, Clement Greenberg and the Cold War, will be published by Bloomsbury. Uh, Daniel will discuss uh, Josephine Berry's new book, uh, Art and Burr Life, uh, Biopolitical Inquiry, Burr uh, in Parentheses there uh, That's published by Stanberg Press uh, Joseph will talk about Ghislaine Leung's uh, exhibition Constitution at London's Hill Gallery On show until the 24th of March uh, But first uh, we begin with uh, Louise's feature titled D I W O. Dia, a series of tongue-twisting acronyms. I'm sure we'll discuss. Uh, your feature creates a snapshot of the re- uh, the, uh, the, re- the numerous uh, alternative art art schools and self organised groups self organised groups rather set up as a result, in part to the continued art arts council cuts, mm-hmm. uh, but also um, numerous other reasons such as uh, gentrification, uh, lack of jobs, etc yeah uh maybe maybe we begin with uh, how uh, you set up an alternative art school, the uh, alt mfa um, and uh, and why you felt it was sort of particular why there was a particular need when you did that
1: yeah, well, it was back in two thousand and ten when i'd graduated from the Ruskin and uh moved to London to seek my fortune um, that was put on hold for a while while I did a string of of very dead end jobs. Um, ranging from working in a HMV warehouse, sticking s- sale stickers on all the stuff in the middle of Canning Town somewhere to being one of those charity fundraising people that tries to sell you Amnesty International in the street and all of the I jobs... That. That, I, mean, I got <laughs>
2: fired after a day.
1: <laughs> all the jobs that you can imagine that, that I'm sure most artists have done uh, realising... The thing that art school taught me on my BA was to be quite adaptable um, and resourceful. And um, I quickly realised that I couldn't just be picked up by the art world as an idea, but that I had to kind of invent it along with my friends. And so eventually I was working as a fabricator uh, in uh, in the studios of Damien Hirst because my friend from art school had been a babysitter for uh one of his assistants um in Sunderland, It wasn't exactly a kind of old boys network thing, but f- through some kind of quirky fate, right. um, I ended up working as a fabricator with lots of other recent graduates in these studios making artwork. So it was kind of in the art world, but in this strange, hidden, backstage yeah. uh, area. And so it was almost like an educational space because as we were working all of these 30 recent graduates were talking to one another about what we were making Um, and so I had then a a friendship context for um, sort of situating myself in some kind of community Um, and from there I started talking to my friend Lucy Gallon who is an artist and social practitioner who works with um, migrant communities and homeless people uh, particularly cooking and things like that in stoke newington and um so she's really brilliant and um she was doing a project at raven row at the time with ultra red um and uh they'd set up this school um so they were collaborating with lots of more emerging artists and so she um and i were thinking well we want to do an ma we don't want to pay a ton of money to do it I'd actually been doing an MA in cultural studies at night school at right. Birkbeck at the same time as working full-time. But it wasn't a substitute for an art MA. Mm-hmm. Um And I've been organising a lot of shows as well, but... There was never the luxury of discussion around that. It always felt like you were so knackered by the end of the install or the de install that people just went home for a lie down. Like there was no kind of critical discourse around it. So we thought, well, we want to do an MA. Let's do it anyway for free. We'll just. We were reading um, okay. about radical education and we just thought, we'll just do it.
0: So it was you and, sorry, I forgot the name Lucy of you, Lucy, Eagle, that yeah. initially set up this alternative art school. So yeah. maybe talk a little bit about, um, for the sake of people that don't necessarily know, how you then structured that mm. organisation. Was that important for you or was it more of a nebulous network of contacts?
1: Well, um, we researched the history of these things, I, particularly those, one called the Mountain School of Art in LA, which has been going a little bit longer than us, and um, that's selective. It's quite trendy. They had a space above a Chinese restaurant which people could stay in as well, so once you're in, you got accommodation as well. And Gagosian Gallery had given them a library, and it was quite kind of networked, and it felt quite exclusive, and it was great what they were doing, but we felt like, why would we be gatekeepers if we're trying to question some of the we wanted to question what an art school was, um, in a sort of loving way in order to um fix some of the the challenges that we thought it brought with it to do with exclusivity and access and class and money and and also debt. Um and one of those aspects was the fact that it you had to apply and then be accepted so we decided ours wouldn't be exclusive at all anyone could join at any time but roughly there'd be a limit of about 12 people mm-hmm. because lucy's husband is uh, does a lot of kind of therapy work um and uh that's he said that's the sort of number for group therapy so we thought well you know it's a nice like religious number it's it's the maximum amount of people in a room that could have a productive discussion, really. But we never really had to enforce that that limit because it naturally self-selected as having about 12 active in-the-room members yeah. at any point. So we'd just alternate between a discussion week around a certain theme and then a crit week and then sometimes we'd have a guest speaker who would be giving their time for free sometimes with us helping them out in exchange but we had it, we operated without any money at all mm-hmm. for quite a long time for one year we had a, a AN bursary uh, but other than that it's just been going yeah. f- autonomously
0: and how important then was it to sort of describe it as something like an MFA in a way although you use the word alt in front yeah. of it yeah, I yeah. mean in a way it's sort of interesting that you've adopted the codes of an art school or, you know, even the sort of the qualifications, rather, of an art school, rather than sort of supplant it with something of your own, perhaps. Was that important for you to perhaps pick up some of those legacies of art education in a formal way and represent them on your terms?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it felt more rebellious as a gesture to confront the institution directly, because obviously you can't just call it, an MA on MFA, but what if you do? You know, what if you set up a bank and call it a bank? Like, it makes you think, well, what is this thing anyway? Um, and as soon as you look into it, you realize that all it actually is is um, just people being together and committing to yeah. a process. And that's a valuable thing. And a lot of people in Autumn FA have done. Uh, institutional MAs or gone on to do them as well so we really were conscious that it isn't either or it might be either and but you might be much more active in the process mm. of doing an MA once you do save up yeah. enough to do one Um so, yeah, it's sort of fraught with hypocrisy, which I think is the only honest position, really. <laughs> to I mean, it's
0: interesting. I mean, let's talk a little bit about how then, do you see that situated against other organisations? I mean, a lot of people talk about Open School East. I mean, but you mentioned also Tamar, uh, other kinds of organisations that have pre- presented other kinds of art structures or art teaching and methodologies. Um, is Alt-MFA, the, how, do you, how do you cite or situate your, yours in relation to those? organizations.
1: Yeah, I think um, Open School East is a bit more institutional in that it was founded in more direct partnership with institutions and it has that... Um, that community-orientated, almost like you give back by working with a local community. And so you are kind of paying for it. I think it's a really exciting way that people pay mm. for it. And I think that that does develop people's practice and give them new skills. I also think that some artists find it really hard having to do it. Um, they wouldn't not do it, but they it, it's... Is paying for it and it's a lot of work and that can take time away from what you might do otherwise in your practice. Um, So, yeah, ultimate phase is a bit different because it's only Monday nights. So, in some ways, um, it is a, a bonus to your life. You don't expect a lot from it and so anything that it gives you is like a gift and um people are only involved when they're getting something out of it and they're only really getting something out of it when they're putting into it so it really gives you what Mm. you put in and there's no leader there's just well almost everyone's a leader because there are lots of interesting personalities and we don't really tend to clash i mean i haven't been as involved for the last six months because i've just I kind of dip in and out now because it's it's quite a lot to be doing it for like that many years um and it it, if any member left it would just keep going now it's like a thing and it's fledged and it's it's kind of just self and it takes place
0: sorry i didn't think i actually found out where where does it take place currently in
1: different places so it started off in people's front rooms and then it's it was hosted by and it's in, it it. in country, it it? it's in London, or whereabouts in the country? It's in London, but yeah, we have links with lots of other art schools that are, or alternative art schools um, that are in London or elsewhere, and so it it kind of. It has a territory that mm. is extends kind of anywhere really, but most of the meetups will be in London. Um, just everywhere from a pub to a gallery to someone's house, mm. and that really changes how people interact with each other as well. If you're in someone's front room and they're like making a soup, or if you're in a pub, um, it's just a really social way of connecting and i guess Mm. lots of artists are doing that anyway but we chose to give it a little bit more structure because organized fun is is great (laughs) (laughs) i like organized fun it makes it less awkward to talk to people when you've got a fake university structure in place um i guess
0: i mean we've touched on very gently uh some of the conditions or the sort of the backdrop the political backdrop Uh, as to why these organizations have sort of become more and more prominent, let's say, in the last few years. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, you go through those, and I think that, I mean, largely they're very familiar to to many listeners here, but perhaps Mm -hmm. we should just maybe bring in some of that backdrop here about the precarity, about the diminished, uh, you know, sort of uh, availability of spaces and so on, and how these kind of organizations trying to fill that or plug that hole, really. Mm -hmm. Is that...
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I think it's slightly changed in that now you can get a loan for an MA, whereas, uh, like you can for a BA. So it's, anyone can kind of do it. Now, you still have to pay it back, but you don't have to pay back the bank loan, career development loan, which is, like, crazy interest. So already it's slightly easier um, to do these things. But, yeah, it was incredibly difficult to afford to not only just pay for an M.A., particularly back when we started, but also to take the time out of work um, and life to devote that time to a full-time study. And mm-hmm. not that many um, universities offer part-time M.A.s. So, um, and, and also the fact that an M.A. just stops and then you're back in real life again with alt it never ends. So you can just mm-hmm. keep going forever or leave and come back. And I think it's we're not judgmental about when each other's real lives intervene or when people are in burnout territory because um, we all know what it's like. And quite a lot of people have kids um, that are in... Uh, it seems to attract people that wouldn't have been able to do an institutional MA anyway which gives it a totally different feel as well.
0: You mentioned other organisations, I'm trying to find them here now, that I know you mentioned um, Women of Colour Index um, but you also mentioned other organisations the ones that develop or you know support maternity or coverage for children and so on. Yeah, yeah. Um, Do you feel that's also very much instrumental in terms of fashioning out these or carving out these new spaces for self-organised and particularly artist organisations?
1: Yeah, I mean I think it's sort of necessary isn't it? I know that RCA used to have a crush, Goldsmiths has a crush I don't have kids but I've worked with kids a lot and a lot of my friends have kids I think kind of care and life like the realities of life, not just privileged life but kind of ordinary people's lives and the balances that they're having to make between work and all these other things, it's just any other industry would respect that but it seems like the art world doesn't necessarily and so it's just a practical thing really how do you make it sustainable because um, I don't know if it really is that sustainable to have an art career if you don't have the resources well, no. to What's back the, it
0: I mean, well, the average UK artist earns no more than £10,000 a year which of course is not a figure that anyone can live on except yeah. perhaps for those that are privileged in a certain way and not dependent on an income stream of their own making. Yeah, um,
1: it's, it's really shocking. Mm. Uh, I've spoken to curators who work with mid career and established artists who say that the artists they're working with, you'd think that they're like famous and they're, you know, they've made it, but actually they're not even paying taxes because they're not in that bracket. Like, it, it's kind of shocking. Um, and I've sort of got two views in that we should be fighting to get paid and all these campaigns for paying artists fair amounts are really, really crucial. Mm. And they've directly helped me to increase my fees for things just by referencing them. Um, But I also think that uh, if we obsess over sort of professionalizing everything so much that the admin outweighs the time for the work itself maybe it would be better to just opt out entirely and just do it in a a more anarchic way um so in a way i mean that's
0: what i think what's also interesting in terms of some of these organizations is perhaps the subversive or anarchic elements in terms of In a way, how we've often categorized or viewed, um, you know, the achievements of, I mean, certainly artists' careers, you know, with an MA and a BA, a BA, MA, you know, and they're typically ordained from various organizations, Mm -hmm. particularly from a London perspective, you know, the various names that rubber-stamp certain people's careers and so on. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I like it's quite interesting to kind of break up some of that and kind of offer different perceptions or different viewpoints on, on what that might be and how we constitute those uh, uh, realities, you know, for artists. Um, so, I mean, it's sort of interesting in that regard.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's like there's so many skills that you learn at an art institution an art school that is accredited but there's also a lot that you have to learn when you leave anyway Mm. and i think these alternative schools make that a little bit more they kind of bridge that slightly more so that um you can be learning while doing it's not like you step out of the flow of, of your career. You're kind of doing it concurrently. So I think they're necessary in addition to the institutions. And the institutions are kind of celebrating these alternative art schools as well as peers and as um, as organisms that can give energy back to them and new ideas to them. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's almost like a research space that can bring um th- sort of vitamins that are needed by pressured um arts institutions that maybe can't mm. um take time to do that research um so it's it can be a symbiotic thing, I think, as well, mm. with organisations that are more kind of You talk a
0: little bit about partnerships and various other kinds of partnerships. Also, one partnership perhaps being uh, artists themselves, you know, taking on roles that aren't typically aligned, let's say to an art practice um, mm-hmm. so for instance uh, artist come fishmonger Sam Curtis, artist slash plumber Sauve Behrman, artist chef Sh- uh, Sean Roy Parker mm-hmm. it's sort of, for me the sort of interesting um, this I mean in my head sort of almost tension between uh, the proximity between a, a job let's say and what we consider to be that of an artist do you want to talk a little bit about that because it's a very interesting area I think
1: yeah I mean I- Every time I've worked somewhere um, that didn't feel like it was part of my practice, it has always become useful to my practice in the end. And I think the difference in the jobs that have been more art world or art education, like my current jobs are much more within the arts, but um, it it feels like the, the difference is just this psychological thing that if you... You feel validated by working within the arts, if you just had that validation for yourself while you were working in your day job that had nothing to do with mm. the arts, then it would be just as useful a space if not more so for developing mm. practice. I've been a care worker and recently made work for the welcome um for an event at the Welcome about that and just looking back on it now i learned so much from that it was almost like a studio space in a way and um i don't i think we almost hide these day jobs as if that makes us not a real artist like that's the thing that makes us amateur but actually i think the the amateur it's the era of the amateur within tech like uh people are programming software like in vast numbers it's not the experts that are ruling the advancement of of software it's um the amateur and so i think i really like the idea of the amateur as someone that is kind of the uh, the amateur bit being for the love of it rather than um professional which just sounds like you're just doing it for your job it's not Or maybe um, romanticizing yeah, it yeah I
0: think the tension arises though that if someone's paying for that service let's say mm. then there's certain expectations perhaps about what may be uh, you know delivered at that point but uh, you know for instance if I wanted some fish yeah. say yeah, 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 yeah. Um, etc but I mean I'm just saying in terms of it seems to me maybe the argument is also within this idea of even the artisanal as much as the artists here. And that's a, also mm. a kind of a slip as well, which broadens perhaps some of the, what you're describing, but also creates a tension, I think. You know, if you looked back even towards the artist placement groups, you know, you think of John Latham and mm. Barbara Stevini and so on, yeah. and how they were actually integrated in in sort of uh, workplace environments. They retained a space of themselves as artists mm. um, and reflected on those experiences as artists instead in a way what this is doing is a leading that space and actually just saying i am an artist but also i'm a fishmonger and so yeah. on and so it's a different paradigm perhaps that's it's, being negotiated there
1: it's totally different in that the dream would be to be an artist in that context of some kind of real world space or like non-art space um and it would be amazing if that was revived, um, mm. the artists' placement group. But um, I think, uh, yeah, these artists are just doing their normal day job and yeah. then their art as an extension of it, but they're just taking skills from their day job and yeah. bringing them into their work, um, their, their art practice. So I think, yeah, it, the ultimate goal was to to be to do your practice all the time but there's something about these limits that we're facing and almost that every limit comes with a resource as well um as well as a burden and there's so much kind of Mm. navel gazing and kind of self-victimizing that we do I, i i mean i've I whinge as well. I just, I saw, I was writing, when I was writing this article, I was walking through Soho and I saw this like sports car with a private registration plate and it was like T1RED. It just said tired. And I was like, oh, I'm really tired as well. And this person's made it and they've got this sports car, but they've like archived how they got it by <laughs> exhausting themselves. And I just thought, well, why are we trying to make it when we could just make it? be making it like the, you've already got what you if if some christie's dealer person um said that like after your fourth house and you've bought yeah. like a private island or something then what else is there you there's art like well we've already got that so we've already got the destination so why kind of uh i think sometimes we lose track of that and we're just trying to get to this Thing where a goal, but actually, we've already got we're already able to do most oh, of the right. things. Oh, right, you, you mean this we, sort of almost
0: fantasy, this sort of ever increasing fantasy of what's possible, and actually, and success. within that, there's also, as you're saying, the sort of the limit actually has its own kinds of richness that can be exploited perhaps for an artist's career and so on.
1: Yeah, already, you've yeah. got an okay. iPhone, you can make yeah. anything that you want, kind of thing for free. <laughs> Maybe. I'm gonna
0: maybe yes think about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not everything is possible with an iPhone. Um, I will maybe come back to you have maybe some time at the end of this show to discuss further some of these sort of interesting areas around art schools and alternative, arts, alternative art schools. But uh, if I may, I may move on uh, to Joseph Constable, who's kindly reviewed this month uh, Ghislaine Lung's uh, exhibition Constitution, which is at Chisholm Gallery. Um, where to begin with this, in a way? <laughs> um, perhaps let's describe. I mean, Gil, We'll call her Gil because that's her name that she goes by. Um, she's she's known for, as a writer. She's known as a, a sort of filmmaker. And then for this this show, she's presented a series of objects bound by a certain I- set of ideas. Uh, this is vague as I'm going to get. Uh, perhaps we begin by describing what the show is and then yeah. we'll move from that I think that's probably the sensible solution here I mean
3: there's kind of three um, sort of key layers that I think are happening in the exhibition one of which being this sculptural installation which uses these um, I guess prefabricated walls which have this kind of domestic come office like aesthetic Um, And these are all kind of connected by different wires, um, some of which seem redundant, others seem like they're powering something, some things are powering something, um, such as uh, motion sensor lights, um, little sort of night lights, which are installed onto the the walls. And then the other element is this sound installation, Mm. um, which are these two uh, vertical speakers that are aligned quite close to each other. um, And they play out this kind of recorded sound that's been manipulated, looking into the ideas of um, active noise cancellation. Um, And then the third element is much more kind of spatial and thinking about the gallery itself, which... um, Gil has kind of done these different um, architectural reconfigurations or very slight adjustments to the gallery um, one of which is quite noticeable when you walk in which is um, glossing all of the walls in mm. this kind of high, high gloss white paint so you get this kind of uh, chemical odour, it's how I sort of begin the review because it's the first thing that kind of hits you um, as you go in. Um, she's also uh, shrunk the gallery door, the entranceway, so you kind of go in in this almost kind of smaller domestic size frame um, which then leads to the double height of the gallery so that kind of changes your perspective as you going in as well Um, and then she's also painted um, the other doors in the space black so in this way she's kind of created I guess a network or this sort of connected installation um, which is quite abstract and quite confusing at first but it really sort of I think is led by your own movement in the space and as you start to go around. Um, one thing I should also say is that the um, the wiring is also powering a couple of other elements, sort of moving image elements, one of which is a, uh, a monitor which is installed in the corner, kind of hidden behind one of these prefabricated walls, um, which displays what's called stuffaloons, which is like a sort of tutorial from YouTube, I guess, um, showing how to sort of stuff these very large balloons with... Um, teddy bears and different kind of material things um, and the other element is an I- I- ipad which is um, has 272 um, images that gil has collected um sort of before and during the process of uh, making this exhibition which you can kind of swipe through mm. as well
0: yeah and this is strange i guess within the work there's the tensions and we'll talk about some of that but there's a sort of almost most saccharine quality uh, you know these images of you know the the radio shows that she's selected magic heart kiss uh, and the sort of the sort of sticky labels you know with hearts on them and also this stuff alums these there's a sort of saccharine you know the boss mugs as well there's a sort of the sort of display mm. of the plastics and so on there's a sort of saccharine or and the pink noise as well you know this sort of on edge kind of pink you know and then alongside that complicitly, you know within that there's a sort of more starker and hard-edged concept well i would think conceptual sort of backdrop yeah um,
3: but there's something i think that unites all of the different materials is this kind of idea of mass manufacturing mm-hmm. or the idea of these kind of readily commonplace items um so these sort of yeah these kind of pink uh, heart stickers but i think that the way that she's installed it and do- done it is kind of use something that's very commonplace and Like, sort of, weirdly familiar in quite a surreal way, um, but then sort of created her own kind of idiosyncratic rhythm Mm. of how she's actually placed these things together. When you go into the sort of the space itself it almost feels like a kind of stage set so there's something very provisional about it and fragmented um but there's also this weird sense of absence as well there's as i said there's something quite domestic about it Mm. and it's like kind of the actors aren't there or the people who should be living here aren't there and there's this kind of there's this kind of expanded network that you have to kind of make sense of um going through it and i think that sort of that saccharine nature. There's definitely something about, I guess, taste in a way, these kind of very kitschy uh, mugs that are displayed there with this very sort of like elaborate flamboyant gift wrap around them, um, which are actually kind of a really interesting counterpoint to this very sort of white stark Mm. um, materials.
0: Yeah, and also uh, uh, perhaps it's quite interesting to explain a little bit further, actually, the pink noise element and how that was actually fabricated in terms of this, this presentation and so on.
3: Yeah, so the actual sound installation, the title of the work is Kiss Magic Heart, which refers to the three um, three radio stations that she's actually taken the uh, the soundtracks from. Um, and what she did is just looked at sort of the spaces in between the music on those radio stations and then manipulate them. She was doing a residency at MPAC in New York, um, which is the Experimental medium. Arts Centre um, and what she was looking at was this idea of active noise cancellation so if you think about uh, noise cancelling headphones the way in which they function is by playing a noise as, sort of as a resistance against the sound that's been playing out of the headphones which I didn't actually realise so it's almost this kind of counteracting of noise in order to create um, to n- neutralise yeah. it in a way and Gil was she speaks about it in the interview was really interested in how if you whether it's possible to do this in space so when you kind of break that feedback loop of your ears to the headphone, this kind of enclosed space, um, is that even possible? And I think she quickly found out that that wasn't possible purely because of the sort of variables of, um, I mean, she talks about it literally as space and time. Mm. She talks about it very filmically, which I guess kind of connects to her background in Yeah, I remember actually hearing
0: her describe various, uh, looking into that research, and she said, you know, like various people saying neighbours where they're playing their music very loud is it possible to put a speaker that's playing the exact opposite in yeah. terms of noise, noise cancellation and actually delete that sound yeah. of course it's not possible but anyhow it's just quite amusing yeah. sort of but side story
3: what becomes quite one of my favourite elements of the show was how that then relates to your own body in the space. Mm -hmm. Um, She talks a lot about the idea of resistance and sort of resistance within these different networks, whether that's in an institution or sort of even within an artistic process. But actually in the space, um, as you move around, the movement of your body kind of changes the way that your ear is responding to the sound. So you get this constant sense of almost like you're kind of choreographing the sound as you move around. Your body almost becomes this sort of source of resistance itself. So it completely sort of changes that sort of very enclosed um, one-to-one relationship that you would have if you were listening to sound on headphones. Mm.
0: And in addition to that, I mean, it's, we, we'll talk a little bit about the, the way uh, Gil uses language, because it's very specific, actually, mm. um, not least, in fact, in terms of the press release, uh, which is an actual sort of uh, narrative, descriptive yeah of uh walking into the gallery and kind of conce- you know seeing what we pre- you know what's being presented in mm-hmm. the in the exhibition and it becomes this sort of uh before and after or after and before of like what what was what was conceived in advance or what uh, and mm-hmm. vice versa um and also the titling itself and also how the titles and the content is deleted. You know, she says it's yeah. not the. This is not the work. Yeah,
3: she sort of um, renders everything obsolete as she states yeah. it in a weird way. So, yeah. for
0: instance, the black. Do- you know, the doors are all painted black, but the black. The, the black doors are not the work. It's mm. only when all the doors in that room are black, and that is the work. Yeah, not the actual object itself. Yeah, I mean. Can we talk a little bit perhaps about what those gestures indicate in terms of what where she's trying to reach for something in the work?
3: Yeah, I think there's this sort of idea of this kind of excessive description that is sort of going on in this kind of tautology or this repetition that happens again and again in, in the sort of description that she outlines and almost kind of overly consciously sort of explaining and over-explaining it. But I think that relates to that idea of sort of a certain space being constituted and that network of relationships it doesn't make any sense outside of this context and i think that's really important for how she for how she sees all these things working together i mean for me this sort of connection to language extends into the space as well not just on the written paper mm-hmm. but also you can compare the sort of way she talks about it and the way these things are related to almost like a kind of syntax or grammar. You know, mm. there's something incredibly, or well, quite structuralist about it in terms of how she's creating this network um, and how all these meanings are connecting to one another. Um, but then there's also something, I mean, linguistically, this kind of idea of constriction. There's something very, very thought through about the way all of these things are aligned and positioned. Um, I was actually reminded of um, Oulipo, the kind of French group of scientists and writers, mathematicians who did these kind of writing exercises um, where they would use some very constrained writing techniques but in order to sort of uh, fragment them or kind of create an anomaly. So how could you sort of use structure and rules in these different configurations in order to access something else? And I think that connects to the kind of Idiosyncrasy of Mm. her artistic process and how she's using the materials in order to get to that in a certain way.
0: Yes, and also, I mean, it actually made me think also numerous things, one being Alvin Lucio's uh, I'm Listening to the Sound of My Voice in a Room, which I don't know if you know the work, but, you know, he's playing, he's describing sitting in a room uh, and it's played back in that room and then fed back into the machine and played out again. And so by process of just repetition, it becomes just this noise at the end and it's a similar relationship between language and abstraction and uh, the physical space we're see- we're being in, and it also reminded me a little bit of even Joseph Kasuth, you know, the one and three chairs work, which we see um, a chair, a picture of a chair, and a description of a chair, or the ind- you know, the dictionary definition of a chair. And it's this sort of like the relationship between, yeah, language and the object. Um, I think the i'm interested in, to me what i have when i'm wrestling with girls work and I, I do wrestle with it it's because i it's it's finding her her choice of why these objects and why this arrangement is of importance mm. and um and where is trying to drive a sort of position in our understanding of space um that's you know perhaps we could talk about that you know or do you have any views on why why this arrangement is important other than because in a sense, she's just using the word constitution mm. to talk about, in a way, the ar- some sort of arbitrary. Is it an arbitrary system of signs that she's drawing, drawing through, or drawing upon?
3: Mm. I mean, I think the thing that I kept referring back to was this relationship to to film and just kind of the structures of film. I mean, if you think about the installation, it has um, it uses light, it uses sound, it uses these kind of different signifiers um, to create this kind of like a sort of weird narrative in a way. Mm. Um, and there does seem something very deliberate about it. I don't think that it's arbitrary. There's a weird thing when you do go in, it does feel arbitrary in a weird way, just because everything is so sort of quite austere in a way mm. and very abstracted. Um, but actually there's this sort of very, there's a delicacy to to it and sort of that's kind of reflected in the Stuffoloon's tutorial as well. This kind of, that's kind of how I ended the review because that was what lasted this kind of idea of an inflated kind of container um, that's holding everything mm. in this kind of tension. Um but it could also just burst at any moment. Mm. There's this kind of precarity to the, what she's set up. Mm. And I wouldn't say that she's come in with this sort of very concrete space that she's constituted. I think that kind of roominess or that will, that precarity is very much part of how she's mm. uh, positing it. Um, and that actually the spaces that we do create, whether that's an actual sort of domestic space, an office space, or even more sort of... Um, Abstractly, like in terms of relationships mm. and things like that, and different um, codes between people, all of those things seem quite stable, but actually they're very fragile. Um, and I think that fragility is really important. And I think it connects as well to the the workloads, which is the mm. the iPad piece. This kind of idea of just scrolling through, and actually when you go through this this iPad work, you start to see the connecting points between different uh, items in the exhibition. So, for example, um, the boss mugs, there's sort of a Mm. sign above a house which says the boss. So you start to see this kind of connecting uh, moments that have led to how this space has become... Constituted. Um, but you also get the impression that there are infinite kind of configurations of what this space could have been. So I think it's quite loose in a way, but also it's, it's strong in terms of the how, she's, how it's actually been found. Yeah, the conceptual
0: but frames are. Yeah. But, the,
3: but the framework is there, but there's also precarity, which is part mm. of that.
0: Yeah, in a, in a way, you're right. It's, this, it, it, it's testing those relationship limits, uh, both linguistically and objectively, or through the objects themselves. I mean, I think that's what's interesting, the titling, such as brother or is it you know lover and mm. father and you know these sort of child like or you know familiar relationships and how they kind of be how they're structured but also offer up these conceptual understandings of how objects non you know are also sort of framed or thought through in, yeah. in other ways
3: i guess how they how those terms as well become containers of mm. meaning that people sort of but in quite a vacuous way and as well yeah. i think she's critiquing that as well
0: Okay, good. Maybe we'll move on to Daniel at this point. Um, Daniel, you review, reviewed a book, uh, Josephine Berry, for us. Um, unfortunately, I have not a chance to read this book, so I will be relying <laughs> on your viewpoint. Yeah, um, I read it a while um, ago as well. <laughs> uh, to, 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 to take us forward. Um, it may be good. I mean, I, it, it seems like it's you, it's split over five chapters, and it's. Um, yes, that, five chapters, yes. And. As yeah, it, starts, it sort of spans a period starting... Am I, I mean, I'm guessing it starts with the Enlightenment and moves on through towards more contemporary references. Yes, to the most contemporary uh, references. yeah, yeah. Uh, And so she's spanning a sort of broad terrain, really. Um, yeah, it's
2: incredibly... Yeah, in, 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 it's like okay. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's such 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 a feat. <laughs> She's.
0: Uh, uh, Where should it. we be, do? Would you like to begin uh, in the first chapter, or should we just skip to the later parts? I mean, um, I'm happy to to take your lead there. Um, I mean, it, uh, do we need the grounding? I'm,
2: well, I, I can, like, we, let's I, can we, I can read the kind of kind of I kind of, of yeah. summarize the central thesis. I won't read the review. Yeah, summarize the central thesis <laughs> in. <laughs> Uh, This paragraph, I said, um, the central thesis of art and bare life is that the enlightenment processes of disenchantment, which led on the one hand to the administration of everyday life in the service of private profit, um, and on the other to arts emancipation from its former courtly and ecclesiastical functionality, should not simply be read in parallel, but rather are imbricated and inform one another. So essentially, yeah, that's what she's talking about. Um, And in every single chapter, it works Diachronically, and in every single chapter, um, she discusses the the, the political, economic, um, context yeah. and um, the developments in art in a way that isn't a base superstructure kind of thing, but um, shows how they're both entwined um, and ev- in their relative autonomy. I guess
0: um, yes, and it's quite interesting. I mean, it's interesting to take up such. I suppose, in a way, I would say uh, you know, but feeling that you know. Imp- to take up such a subject through impressionism is perhaps unusual, I would think. Um,
2: well, no, not necessarily. I, <laughs> but, I mean, you um, think about T.J. Clark and yes, all these, that's um, true. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it's it's more uh, with it. Well, the, well, the first chapter, I think, is more, okay. possibly um, the best, or at least the most most inventive one, because she makes she makes a parallel between um, the abstract quality of of citizens upon the collapse of feudalism mm-hmm. and the establishment of capitalism, where all citizens could become become fungible under the rule of capital, with um, the idea of disinterested aesthetic spectators, as art became um, freed from like patronage, um, yeah. uh, well, not really freed from patronage, but yeah, um, and so and yeah, she she draws this parallel in terms of how um, in both cases. This idea of uh, this 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 like, potential, which was unleashed, was then controlled by this this notion of equivalence, mm-hmm. which is fundamentally not equivalent. If that yeah, makes sense, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that, I thought that was really interesting in the first chapter, um, and then she just proceeds throughout the chapters to make like uh, the bit the bit of impression, about impressionism. Um, um, it, she argues that um, yeah, um, that this this further. Um, subsumed was, was while not, she does, she doesn't, um, dismiss the the power of, of impressionism. what, what does she say? She says it's making presentness present in yeah. art. Um, but argues that this, this led to the further subsumption of such affect, uh, mm. by, um, by, by, by a power, as Foucault calls it. Um,
0: um, Yeah, Yeah. and I mean, it's sort of interesting, perhaps, to talk a little bit about Foucault in this relation, then. Um, Let's move into maybe more where perhaps abstract expressionism and and latterly uh, where... Which is my forte. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
2: I I, I should say as a disclaimer that JC was my supervisor on my PhD. Okay, Um, so this is... But the favourable review is not... It's not bound by no, those uh, relations. Um, I, I think it's a really, really good book.
0: Um, well, I'm glad to hear I it. I do have my
2: reservations about it, but... Um, oh, you
0: yeah. do? Well, um, maybe we have a moment for that. But, okay, because, I mean, it is an interesting subject where she talks about abstract expressionism and she sort of looks at it through an essentialist, in a sense, the subject of white, mostly male subject uh, artists and how they've been inscribed in the mark-making itself. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because it's actually quite a nice.
2: Um, yeah, well, for her, um, she talks about how um um the, the 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 um in abstract expressionism. Well basically this is where my thesis I think might have informed her a little bit oh, right, <laughs> um, okay. because my, my PhD was all about how um the, the I I'm am i am arguing about how like, how, like the co optation of abstract expressionism by imperialism mm-hmm. does not exhaust the work itself. Um and in that I, I draw extensively on um uh the 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 philosopher uh, j j bernstein he okay. um he's an Adornian scholar who's written at length about um how abstract expressionism um represents a kind of um what what all art does but abex a- a- especially is uh, the manifestation of a kind of counter epistemology or the potential of a counter epistemology to the um the enlightenment thinking um which okay. um uh, serves Capitalism, or the, the, like instrumental reason, to, to take Adorno's Adorno's phrase. Um, so, um, so, so, Josie takes account of this argument and takes it seriously yeah. uh, in this chapter. So she talks about how, you know, African expressionism is, um, is this kind of it, it represents a mode of thinking um, which is kind of rooted in um, what would be human need rather than the need of profit. So it's a, it's a form of thinking. Which um, wherein sens- sensuousness and um, the concept are not separate; they're they're entwined. You can't you can't experience a, a, a abstract expressionist painting mm. without experiencing it. So that and it, it's undenied, undeniably cognitive, but at the same time um, necessarily like in, a felt in, bod- in yeah. the body sense. Okay. So, uh, but then she talks about how um, in the case of the white, and especially the male artists of abstract expressionism um this was easily co-opted in terms of um how she say the phrase she uses oh yeah commodifiable self relation so the idea that this this um this kind of immediacy becomes um a kind of commodifiable notion of their heroic gestures which is famously most um most famously theorized by Harold Rosenberg, of course, um, and and for the male artists, for the, for the white male artists especially, this this allowed for the artworks to become mm. entirely neutralized. Um, the extent to which they've been neutralized, of course, is debatable because you know art's power is separate from its um, social fact, um, mm. but. Well, well, well. She draws distinction between between the artists, the white male artists, so famous like Pollock, whatever, de Kooning, uh, and um, Norman Lewis, who was um, the only member of the first generation of the New York mm. School who was who was black. Um, and she she discusses how um, while the um, while well, the the most famous and canonical Abstract Expressionists were neutralized through um, their 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 paintings being subsumed as personal expression rather than this sense of of another mode of totally other mode of thinking but they become just like yeah i
0: I guess subsumed under the idea of personal gesture um but also universal i mean in a way i mean that's also specific to maybe abstract expressionism that they touch between that they become universal as much as specific would you not argue do you not see that or do you not
2: well well, I, i would argue yeah yeah, I mean... Uh, like in a sense, sense mean, like in like a Roth...
0: You know, this sort of expansive, all-encompassing other, you know, within... The yeah, effect, of
2: course. Yeah, um, yeah,
0: yeah. You know what
2: I mean? And in a way... But, but that is still, like, in a way subsumed, as opposed to it becomes a spectacle. It becomes... Um,
0: yeah, this idea of, it's, 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 it's entrenched,
2: maybe. Well, I think there's, there's a distinction to be made between um, this kind of... Um, Sense of exhibition value, wherein it becomes, you know, like some kind of manifestation of existential dread, or yeah. where you can go and have a cry in the Rothko room. Yeah. And actually, the idea of kind of trying to wrestle with the idea of, with the notion that this is just a, a, a canvas with with yeah. <laughs> some 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 expanses of paint on it, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's so compelling. And why is this so compelling? But instead, it becomes um, like subsumed under the signification of Eternity or or, yeah. or universality or something. So I think, and then that's always that's always always linked to the personal expression of the artist's genius. Um, Rothko being this like tragic depressive who who slit his wrists. Mm. Yeah, um, this, it, it becomes inextricable. In a, like, and, yeah. So, but then she, she discusses Norman Lewis, who where while well, while well, well, the Abex artists were while well, the canonical Abex artists were kind of neutralized through. It's kind of the kind of subsumption of their work under definitive ideas. Um, he was neutralised just through dereliction because um, he just his paintings never sold, mm. um, and um, and she argues that this was because um, his negritude were was, were, were, was, was it, were were integral to his paintings, mm. but in a way that wasn't the case for a lot of contemporary social realist black painters who did sell. More. Uh, I can't remember if she discussed this in the book, but at the time he he um didn't sell anything. Um at, while um black painters who paint like yeah. Harlem, Harlem Renaissance kind of yeah. painters sold more because they okay. kind it's of fulfilled this kind point. of sphere. Yeah. Yeah, while um he sh- she links his aesthetic to like Fanon and Cesare and stuff as this, this yeah. real like you know, vitalist force. But then it didn't get co opted by the by 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 commercial yeah. by, by commerce but it got it got co opted because he, he, he was just basically just like um i'm it. trying to
0: remember the name of the author now but there's a we had, we, review, we reviewed a book uh, maria walsh reviewed a book uh about phenomen phenomenology mm-hmm. but looking at it through the structures of black identity or black sort of es- mm-hmm. experiences and so on and it feels like this maybe also sort of reflects some of that viewpoint which is uh how do we encounter or uh, perceive subjects when you know, to a you know, I'm simplistic making this mm-hmm. sort of simplistic argument here, but a lot of the phenomenology from Merleau Ponty, etc., is viewed from a white experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we reframe or rethink that through another kinds of experience, uh, racialized mm-hmm. or others? Yeah, um, and so it seems to me that this work perhaps touches upon some of that idea, maybe.
2: Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I haven't read this yeah. book and I haven't I, thought about this kind of, about, of yeah. stuff. Um, um, and I don't want to speak on something like that I'm not, of really, course. Um, uh, but uh,
0: moving on, on right. a tiny bit then, because. Uh, then we move on towards the more 1960s and looking at sort of Carole Schneeman and uh, uh, Coombe um, transmissions um, want to talk a little bit about that because I mean that's a very also a kind of so from we've gone from race more towards sort of race and gender mm-hmm. and so on um,
2: I can't remember this chapter
0: so well actually um, um,
2: um, and Josie actually took me to task for a bit I wrote about Andrea Fraser, not taking this task, but I think she thought I misrepresented what I said about andrea Fraser okay. um what she said about Andrea Fraser, which I probably did um but yeah this this, this chapter, if I remember correctly um, yeah, she talks about um well i remember the the, the the last bit which I apparently didn't do justice to um in the review was uh, is, is about how um she draws a contrast between. Valley Export and Andrea Fraser Yeah. Um, in terms of how for for Valley Export it's all about um, recreating what a body can do like like, reconceiving um, what a body could possibly do Um, uh, while with Andrea Fraser it's always about mapping out the limits which we are Mm. constrained by Um, and she I think Josie quite insightfully uh, maps this onto um, the, the economic context so well, Valley Export was working, um, at the time of the welfare state and a kind of paternalistic capitalism, where even though um, it served
0: capital ultimately, because it was, you know, are we the, talking the about a particular of era of Valley Power. Export's work? The yeah. the ones with the in the public where she was what were in the box and people could touch her, or which works we're um, talking about, or the works with the gen- uh, well, she talks about um, what are the works she talks about because obviously Valley. Continue well. Continue to make work in the seventies, eighties. Yes, yeah, yeah but yeah. But,
2: her, like, uh, but she's talking about uh, what? What specific, specifically? She about specifically. She talks about, um, yeah, seventies. Um, she talks about body sign action, uh, where she gets a garter tattooed onto her leg. She talks about. Um, she talks about works from the sixties as well. Um, she talks about, but essentially the argument is that un- yeah. um, under in, in the welfare state there's a sense of potential mm-hmm. to be realised, while under neoliberalism it seems like the future is 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 foreclosed for everything apart from um, capital, mm-hmm. the, the, the idea of, of future profits. So so we're in, um, and and that's and so she maps on this kind of development from value export to. Andrea Fraser as as yeah. two uh feminist artists. Um which I thought was very No it's an interesting comparison, isn't it? Yeah. I
0: have to say. Um and not an obvious one really, in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um and then you move on a little bit. Uh, I mean, I think these, this sentence sort of seemed interesting to me. We talk about the increased inclusion and then you talk about the economic exclusion, this paragraph here and this idea of inclusion-exclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you recall that. So But it's an interesting, to me, it had an interesting series of tensions perhaps that we could explore in terms of what is being included, what's being excluded and what's what's in play in that. Well I, I, I,
2: I guess the the idea is as um as neoliberalism excluded these subjects, um as a kind of uh, palliative or sticky mm-hmm. plaster new labour uh, there was a proliferation of, of projects mm-hmm. in these kind of dispossessed communities, um which as she, as she notes in turn like um, generated investment and um and inflated rents in those
0: areas. Um yeah, so that's in a sense this a much more straightforward argument, which is that uh the instrumentalization, let's say, of public art as a sort of yeah, as a form of gentrification, as, yeah. a, as we we've sort of seen that um throughout New Labour and mm-hmm. I mean they're maybe not the biggest I mean I suppose they are yeah, the culprits of that. Most I mean, even in addition to the the numerous um you know, art galleries that were built, uh you know, it's hard, isn't it, to be too critical of those things because the same by the same measure you know we, what we did see was a you know huge amount of museums being built that, oh yeah
2: of course you know, yeah yeah
0: um it's 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 a tricky one that i mean the 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 problem perhaps resides more in that the buildings were built but the actual programs um and how they were run and the money needed to run them perhaps wasn't really thought through but uh um so, it, so it's. It, I mean it does certainly span a huge uh, mm-hmm. chunk of time. I mean and it's specifically do you say within a European American context is that it's bro- it's broad overview. Well, of
2: course yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's it's about yeah. it's about
0: Yeah. that's what it's
2: about It's about Yeah. Yeah. I mean
0: I don't I don't think that's particularly can be can be I've a bit for that. No no, no, yeah. no I'm just yeah, I'm just, just trying yeah, to map yeah. out yeah. this, no, yeah, this it's, space it's, in it's, the book. Yeah
2: yeah it's it's, it's
0: yeah, I'm not expecting her <laughs> to then take on a global history. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: But of course, of course, but of course she acknowledges um how it's always yeah. dependent upon the, the plundering of the, of the of the developing world. Yeah. Um you know, spe- especially in the in the in the in the bit about negritude. Um yeah. yeah.
0: Good. Well, does anyone have any thoughts on this particular stage <laughs> in the uh, in the program? Any panning uh, comments that you wish to uh throw open to the to the room at this point, are we all? It just
1: seems relevant that this kind of being within or without the market, and um, it feels like that's what I'm talking about as well. And yeah. that maybe there are arguments in Josephine's book about existing exterior to a kind of economic status quo as well. So I have to buy it now. You're doing um, your job, yeah. But this,
2: uh, I, I wouldn't say she argues for kind of evading
1: mm-hmm.
2: um the market place in in the sense of it's more dialectical than that as, as uh, um there's not really much about like this, this idea of of creating autonomous spaces out, outside mm-hmm. it's more about how it is it, necessarily inextricable from this and it's kind of the, the process of of um i guess evading total subsumption or pointing towards something else while necessarily being imbricated with you know the kind of Mm. um, market necessarily Um,
1: yeah so i'm kind of interested in being able to be inside and outside simultaneously mm -hmm. and occupying that tension so yeah, maybe
2: relevant, but I'm sure it is relevant. <laughs> it you
1: have to do yeah. a PhD to understand. Oh, not at all. It. No, 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 no.
2: Um, nice. No, I, I found it, I found it quite accessible. Really. Um, yeah, it's not not, not no. I, I, I would I would re- definitely recommend
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> Good to hear. Well, at that note, maybe we draw the program to a close. Uh, just leaves me to thank you, thank uh, Joseph Constable, Daniel Nefer and uh, Louise Ashcroft for joining us this evening. Uh, All the uh, subjects discussed uh, today are in
1: this month's issue. That's the March issue of Art Monthly. Uh, Many thanks for listening. I'm Chris McGormick. Thank you.